Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. Let me get to a little bit of movie news, and I have three brand new movies to review for you for the show. Three movies that came out actually on streaming uh, this past week, but in terms of movie news, uh, we actually lost two cinematic greats this week, and I just wanted to cover them right now. The first person we lost this week on January 26th, 2021 was uh, the irreplaceable Cloris Leachman. And it's it's really unfortunate because Cloris Leachman not only had a lot of really great roles in uh, TV shows like the Mary Tyler Moore show, but she also made a name for herself on the big screen as well. She actually won one Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for The Last Picture Show. And what's interesting about the last picture show was that she was not the only one who was nominated for best supporting actress for that movie. Ellen Burstyn was also nominated. So it's, it's not entirely unheard of, but it's, it's unusual for two people to be nominated for the same movie in the same category. But then again, um, that same year, Jeff Bridges and Ben Johnson <clears throat> were also nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role for the same movie, The Last Picture Show, and Ben Johnson ended up winning. And also, interestingly enough, there were no Oscar nominations for The Last Picture Show that year, 1972, <clears throat> in the leading category for The Last Picture Show. But the fact that it picked up two supporting at, um Supporting acting wins is quite impressive. Even more impressive, that's the only time that Cloris Leachman was actually nominated for an Oscar. But I remember her seeing her in several other comedies and dramas where her performance certainly made an impression on me. For instance, she was one of the main go-to actresses that Mel Brooks hired for several movies. I think she made her debut in a Mel Brooks film in Young Frankenstein or Young Frankenstein, depending on your perspective. She played the uptight uh, Fran Blucher, and <laughs> there's actually a great gag in Young Fra uh, Frankenstein when Ever her name is spoken, the the horses that are drawing the carriage go wild. I love that part. I also really liked Cloris Leachman in the movie High Anxiety, which is another Mel Brooks film that isn't as well-revered as Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, History of the World Part 1, but I still liked it anyway. And whenever I get together with my brother, for instance, who knows... Uh, about as much of, of movies as I do, we have one of those relationships where I can say a line from a movie that might seem obscure to most people, but he will eventually, he, he will instantly get who I'm talking about. And one of the lines that I, I said, you know, just in, in conversation during the holidays is one of, um, Cloris Leachman's lines from, uh, the movie high anxiety, which came out in 1977 and was actually a parody of several Hitchcock movies. And it was in that movie where Cloris Leachman plays Nurse Diesel. And one of her most memorable lines in that movie is, If you are late, you do not get a fruit cup. And <laughs> unfortunately, it's very funny when it's in the context of the movie. And nobody else except my brother could possibly get that reference when, whenever I mention it, but if you want to check out high anxiety, it is available on uh, DVD and I, I don't think it's out on Blu-ray yet, but if it's in a, if you find a Mel Brooks box collection, you can definitely check it out there because it's, it's most likely to be included. It's certainly one of Mel Brooks, most underrated films. And she also had a very memorable role in another Mel Brooks film, History of the World Part 1, where she played Madame Defarge, which was loosely based 
actually almost directly based on a character of the same name written in Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. But there are also some really good visual gags with Cloris Leachman in that role as well, which takes place during the French Revolution and is the very last um, part of the history of the world uh, that's covered in History of the World Part 1. And it really is too bad the History of the World Part 1 didn't have a Part 2. It did sort of, it, at the very end, it had a a parody trailer of History of the World Part 2, but you could definitely tell in that movie they weren't intending to make History of the World Part 2, but it, it's too bad. But at the same time, there are other movies in which Cloris Leachman was very funny. She had a five-minute cameo in the Muppet movie where she actually played the secretary of Orson Welles' character who was just known as Lord. And Orson Welles actually had less to do in the Muppet movie. He only had one line as opposed to Cloris Leachman there. But even then, Cloris Leachman was uh, really funny in that role. Another um, role that I remember Cloris Leachman playing, which was also very funny, was actually the the voice of a cartoon character. It wasn't the first time she was the voice of a cartoon character, but I think this is probably her her best role uh, as a cartoon character. It's when she played the part of the old woman on plane and bus, and that was actually how she's credited, even though she had a prominent role in the movie Beavis and Butthead Do America. And I saw Beavis and Butthead do America when it was first released in theaters in 1996. And I was not a fan, actually, of the cartoon show. And I'm still not really. Of course, I've seen a couple of episodes, but I'm one of those people who, when I see an episode of Beavis and Butthead, I can feel my IQ drop about 10 points. And it's at that point that I really need to shut off the TV and read a book. With that said, though, I actually was very impressed by Beavis and Butthead Do America. And Cloris Leachman wasn't the only well-known voice actor in that movie who wasn't Mike Judge. There were also some very memorable voice acting roles in that film by Bruce Willis, Demi Moore, the late, great Robert Stack, David Letterman, and the list goes on. But Cloris Leachman, even though she plays a, a senile old woman who isn't even given a name in the movie, I thought that Cloris Leachman played this role very well. And it actually is quite impressive that Cloris Leachman was playing old lady roles since the 80s. She's been in a number of other uh, movies as well. I thought actually probably one of her most memorable roles of the 21st century was where she played the mother-in-law of... Adam Sandler's character in the movie Spanglish. And Spanglish is another Adam Sandler movie. It's directed by James L. Brooks, and it is one of his more underrated. There are certainly dramatic roles that Adam Sandler has done in the 21st century, like in Punch Drunk Love, that initially bombed at the box office, but after it got released on DVD, and actually after that movie was released in the Criterion Collection, people looked back on it and actually saw it for the great movie that it was. Spanglish, however, which came out two years after uh, Punch Drunk Love, hasn't quite gotten the attention that it deserves, but it had some great performances in it by Sandler himself, in addition to Taya Leone, uh, Paz Vega, a very brief appearance by Thomas Hayden Church, but I really liked Cloris Leachman's role in that movie as Adam Sandler's mother-in-law and Taya Leone's mother. There's, certain, there's a lot of craziness, which I won't get into, but what I really liked about Cloris Leachman's role in the movie was she was kind of the glue of the family. When there were periods of dysfunction, she was usually the voice of reason. I think she did a really great job in that role. And there were even movies that I didn't like, which either co-starred Cloris Leachman or featured her in a cameo, where even her her role was memorable and at least worth the, the time for seeing the film. And I think one of the roles that, in a movie that I really didn't like, was where she made an uncredited cameo in the movie 
You Again. And You Again is a movie that stars uh, Kristen Bell, Jamie Lee Curtis, Sigourney Weaver, uh, Victor Garber, and Betty White. It has a great cast, but it it's a very petty comedy, if you will. It's it, It's a little bit hard to explain, but it's very forced slapstick. But I thought one of the most memorable moments in that film that made it worth watching was the very end where it's revealed that Cloris Leachman is a frenemy of Betty White from way back when. And it's actually, I think it's Cloris Leachman who says the line, you again, contemptuously to Betty White, where the movie actually got its name. So it's not a huge surprise that Cloris Leachman died. She's had a long and illustrious career. She actually set the record, just getting off of movies for a second, for the oldest contestant on Dancing with the Stars, where she participated at the age of 82, if you can believe it. This was way back in uh, 2009. And Dancing with the Stars, it's even harder to believe that that show has been on for 16 years, but it doesn't show any signs of uh, depleting in popularity. But... Cloris Leachman definitely lived a long life. She was a very talented actress. And even when she was in small roles, and even when she was typecast into playing old ladies, she played the hell out of those roles. So, words on film definitely salutes Cloris Leachman today. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. In addition to Cloris Leachman, we also lost another movie great, and that movie great is Cecily Tyson, who died on January 28th at the age of 96. Yeah, amazingly enough, she was older than Cloris Leachman, and also like Cloris Leachman, she will be missed. She was born in... Harlem in 1924 and had a very illustrious career um, as an actress, both on TV, well, actually, I shouldn't say both, on stage, on TV, and in the movies. She actually made history in 1973 for being the second African-American actress to be nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role. And she was nominated for the movie Sounder. Also, Paul Winfield was uh, nominated for that same movie for Best Actor in a Leading Role. Unfortunately for Paul Winfield, he was up against Marlon Brando in The Godfather. And similarly, Cecily Tyson was up against Liza Minnelli in uh, Cabaret. And both of those are classic films. And that's really unfortunate. But... Interestingly enough, Cecily Tyson is tied with none other than Diana Ross, and both of them have the distinction of being uh, have, of being tied for second for being the first African American women nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role. Not since Dorothy Dandridge, forty years before, had an African American woman been nominated for. Best Actress in a Leading Role, and they wouldn't be the last either, Cecily Tyson or Diana Ross. But unlike Diana Ross, Cecily Tyson kept acting in countless movies and TV shows. And I remember her from several, so many that it's really hard to count. But I remember her as Sipsy in the movie Fried Green Tomatoes, for which she was not nominated for an Oscar, but she probably could have been and maybe should have been. She was also really good in a movie that I kind of thought pushed the white uh, savior narrative a little too far, but her as well as uh, Viola Davis and Octavia Spencer were great in the movie The Help. She also had a prominent supporting role in in the TV show How to Get Away with Murder. 
And let's see, some other movies from which I remember her was the little scene Hoodlum, where she played the Haitian heiress Stephanie St. Clair, who's actually based on a real person who ran an illegal numbers game and actually went to prison for it in Harlem in the 1930s. And she was so powerful that other white gangsters like Dutch Schultz and Lucky Luciano wanted to move in on her numbers game, and they ultimately failed at doing so. Another film where I remember her very well was actually a TV movie that aired in 1997 called Ms. Scrooge, which is obviously based on the Charles Dickens immortal story, A Christmas Carol. The only difference is that Ms. Ebenezer Scrooge is a black American woman in this movie that also co-starred Catherine Helmond, Michael Beach, and several other notable actors. That was a TV movie that aired around Christmas time on TNT. It was released on videotape, but surprisingly enough, it was never released on DVD, at least not yet. But since Cecily Tyson is no longer with us, it probably will be. And very much like Cloris Leachman, as I said before, uh, Cecily Tyson was also really good in some bad movies I saw. One such example is a Tyler Perry movie she was in, actually the very first uh, Medea film, uh, which was not directed by Tyler Perry, unlike his later Medea films, but he did star in the movie, for better or for worse. I would probably say for worse. And he did write the very successful play, which was the basis of the movie. The movie is Diary of a Mad Black Woman, which should have been a better film than it ultimately was. In my opinion, if they had left the Medea character out of it, it could have had the potential to be a great film. And Cecily Tyson actually plays the mother of the main character of the film, who is a woman who is kicked out of her um, elaborate mansion uh, by her <laughs> philandering husband. Uh, she's played by Kimberly Elise. Cecily Tyson plays her mother. And Medea, interestingly enough, is the grandmother of Kimberly Elise's character and the mother of Cecily Tyson's character. Not quite sure how that dynamic worked back then, but for such a film that had so much potential that Medea ultimately ruined, Cecily Tyson was actually good in that film. So there are a lot of great movie and, and TV show roles that Cecily Tyson filled. I also forgot to mention that she played a prominent role in the movie Roots, which was a prominent TV miniseries in the late 1970s. But I haven't seen Roots, so I can't speak very accurately for that movie. But Words on Film certainly celebrates and salutes the life and work of Cecily Tyson. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you after those spoken word tributes to Cloris Leachman and Cecily Tyson is Finding Ohana. This is a new film that came out on Netflix on January 29th, 2021, and it is about uh, teenagers who spend a summer in rural Oahu and their their summer there takes an exciting turn for two Brooklyn-raised siblings when a journal pointing to a long-lost treasure sets them on an epic adventure with new friends and leads them to reconnect with their Hawaiian heritage. There have been several movies that take place in Hawaii over the last couple of years. I mean, definitely the last couple of decades. But there have been very few high-profile movies that take place from the perspective of native uh, Hawaiianers or whatever you call uh, the people who um, are from the native tribes of Hawaii. 
Oftentimes, with movies like The Descendants or Aloha, it's usually Hawaii from the perspective of a white person. So it actually is a very refreshing change for a movie like this to actually star Native people. And there are very few movies out there. There are only a handful over the last few decades which star Native Americans in general and are about the Native American perspective, but there are even fewer about Native Hawaiian people. And that's what I really appreciated about this movie. And it also delved into some misconceptions maybe about Native Hawaiian people in the sense that not not many, I, I guess one of the misconceptions is that there aren't any Native Hawaiian people who live anywhere other than Hawaii. Whereas in this movie, you have native Hawaiianers who actually move to other parts of the world. For instance, the main woman in this, or the main character in this movie is a teenager named Leilani, who's played by Kelly Hugh. And when we first meet her, she is growing up in New York City. And she also has a knack for treasure hunting. And not only a knack for it, but she has a love for it as well. And I also thought it was actually a clever twist here where Leilani is a native uh, island Hawaiianer. She was born in Hawaii but raised in New York City, presumably Manhattan. And she actually speaks fluent Spanish, not necessarily because she's interested in speaking Spanish, but because many people who, who she meets in New York City presume that she is Puerto Rican. Uh, that's explained in the movie, and I thought that was particularly hilarious. Uh, that she is assumed to be Puerto Rican, and rather than saying you know what she actually is, she says, "Okay, I'll just go along with this and learn Spanish." I think that's very funny. Not to mention a very productive way to overcome adversity. And she also has an older brother who is. Uh, uh, the the cast uh, listing here, oh yeah, here it is. Uh, his name is okay. I'm I'm looking this up as I'm going along, and forgive me if I'm uh, forgetting some people. But anyway, his name is Ryan, and he's played by uh, a, a native actor named Ryan Higa. And the two of them are so used to being in New York City. And the reason they're actually coming home is because their mother, uh, Hannah, who's play, excuse me, that's not her name. Uh, her, th- their mother is, is um, re- returning to Hawaii because her father, their grandfather, has had a heart attack. Plus, he's also behind in his taxes. And their mother is trying to get them to get him to move to New York City with them. And, of course, he doesn't want to do it. And my main inclination is, if he's a native Hawaiianer, why would you want to leave Hawaii? But, of course, as this movie demonstrates, there are plenty of people who do for a variety of reasons. So, Leilani, her brother Ryan... Uh, a friend she makes whose name is Monks, who's played by Ricky Garcia, as well as a potential love interest of Ryan, whose name is Hannah, who's played by Lindsay Watson, eventually embark on a journey to find a long-lost treasure um, that has been hidden, presumably, from sight at least since the 1800s. And there actually are some pretty neat flashbacks they have, or at least what they presume to be the the past, where there are various explorers and pirates who in this movie are played by such actors as Chris Parnell and Mark Evan Jackson, who are not only acting as uh, explorers from the 1830s, but they are also mouthing the words that Leilani and her friends are presuming they spoke. It reminded me a lot of the YouTube channel that eventually became a Comedy Central series, Drunk History, where 
uh, people speak in the modern day vernacular, not the most intelligent way of speaking. And the people who lived back way back before, uh, these people were even born are mouthing these common vernacular words. It doesn't sound funny when I say it, but it actually is very funny when you, uh, watch it in this movie. And I really have to give finding Ohana a lot of credit for being a smart film, uh, written screenplay and story by, uh, a, a screenwriter by the name of Christina strain. And she has had some experience writing for a number of TV series like the magicians and shadow and bone, but this is her first movie of feature length film that has been adapted into a screenplay. And I'm not very sure about the details behind Christina strain. In other words, is she a native? Is she from Hawaii? I don't exactly know. I can't find any information about that, but she certainly has an appreciation uh, based on this screenplay and story for uh, natives as well as their, their cultures particularly in modern day. And I can certainly appreciate that. The director of this film is Jude Wang, who has extensive experience as a producer. As a director, he also has a fair amount of experience, although he's directed mainly TV shows, such as one episode of The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, a couple of episodes of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, a few episodes of Grownish. Uh, significant episodes of fresh off the boat and a couple of short films, but this is actually Jude Wang's directorial feature film debut. And it is quite impressive. It's a movie that kids will certainly appreciate. Well, kids will like, and adults will appreciate. I don't want to say that it's worth seeing because it's educational it is, it, it certainly has uh, an educational component to it, but it's not, it's not pushing any educational value in your face. It's certainly making these characters who are very seldom represented on screen into compelling characters. In addition to taking Hawaii and Hawaiian customs very seriously, not to mention having some great panoramic shots as well. I really loved this movie. I loved the cinematography. I loved the acting. I loved the characters. I loved their dialogue. I just loved just about everything about this movie, which is why I'm giving Finding Ohana my rating of a knockout. I explained all the reasons why I love this film, and it's on Netflix. It's a Netflix original. And I feel like if it wasn't on Netflix, I think that Nickelodeon would have picked this film up. The problem is that I think that Hollywood believes not unreasonably that movies that star native Americans are not going to attract a wide audience. And I, I did say wide W I D E. It also couldn't, may not be able to attract a white audience. I think that's a dangerous misconception, but I do have to give credit to Netflix for investing in films with a diverse cast and also getting them out to more places than a standard multiplex would. So for that reason, finding Ohana is definitely worth seeing. And if you have a Netflix subscription, you can see it for yourself and you'll see exactly what I mean.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Dig, another brand new Netflix film, which was released in limited release on January 15th, but it is now streaming on Netflix and probably will be as long as Netflix is a company. It doesn't look like it's shutting down anytime soon, but it, it debuted on Netflix on January 29th, 2021. It is based on a 2007 novel of the same name, which I believe is inspired by actual events. And the reason I say that is because novels, by definition, are fiction. But this book and this movie reimagines the events of the 1939 excavation of a ship called the Sutton Who. And the Sutton Who is the site of two early medieval cemeteries dating from the 6th to 7th centuries. And archaeologists have been excavating this area since 1939, which is where this, uh, this movie takes place. It takes place at the dawn of World War II. And the site at which Sutton Hoo currently resides is in Suffolk, in a, in a small town in England. And the Suffolk landowner is Edith Pretty, whose play, or was Edith Pretty. And yes, that's actually her real name. Oh, was her real name. And she's played in this movie by renowned actress Carrie Mulligan. And she hires a local archaeologist by the name of Basil Brown, who's played by Ray Fiennes, to excavate, excavate the large burial mounds at her rural estate in Sutton Ho. Uh, Sut- excuse me, Sutton Who, uh, paying him uh, two pounds a week, which is approximately 120 pounds in 2020 money. And he does a lot of literal digging in this movie, and he's ultimately helped by the likes of other archaeologists, such as, uh, if you'll excuse me, I'm just looking up the names, and the names are not coming uh, particularly quickly. Excuse me for just a moment. There is the husband and wife team, Stuart and Peggy Piggott, who are played by Ben Chaplin, whom we haven't seen in a while, and Lily James, who we have seen. And there are other people who are very interested in this uh, archaeological dig, which ultimately digs up a very large ship that has apparently been buried underneath this Suffolk land for literally centuries. And problems arise when you actually find that he's digging in an open field. He's not exactly going underground, but there are still dangers to digging on a surface level. I'm not going to give away what happens to Ray Fine's character, but there is one particularly shocking scene that happens near the middle of the movie. And I'm not sure if this happened in real life, but it is quite shocking to see it on the big screen. And what I did like about this film was the fact that it took these people, these archaeologists who are basically spending the entire movie digging in the dirt seriously, but they actually made them into compelling characters. And I think this is the first time that Ray Fiennes has played somebody who is odd and not particularly self-confident. And usually Ray Fiennes always plays somebody who's very suave and sophisticated, whether he's a hero or he's a villain. That's certainly true in movies he's done like The Avengers, which is not a great film. The Avengers from 1998, by the way, which was based on the TV show of the same name, where Ray Fiennes played a guy who is even more aristocratic and smooth than James Bond. He played John Steed. And there have been other films where Ray Fiennes has played somebody who is like that. But in this movie, he actually plays somebody who is very self-conscious and he's, he also is very smart, but in a way that not a lot of people can understand. In fact, he might actually be autistic and it's actually revealed at the very end of the film that Sutton, who, uh, the, the ship on which the, um, 
medieval explorers during the 6th and 7th century were exploring other lands. This ship was eventually put in the British Museum, but not before World War II itself ended. And they actually dug it up in 1939, but then they actually found that they needed to keep it secure because Germany had declared war on Western Europe at the time. And the events that happened in the beginning of World War II don't really need an introduction, or at least not an elaborate introduction for my show. But the dig is a bit slow in parts. It has a running time of one hour, 52 minutes, but there are times where it feels a little longer. But I did appreciate the scenes between Carrie Mulligan and Ray Fiennes. I also really liked the scenes between Lily James and Ben Chaplin. And you wonder as their relationship is progressing, whether or not they were meant to be together or not, but I'm not going to reveal what happens to them, but I will give the dig my rating of a marginal knockout. The reason it's marginal is because the pacing of this film did feel sluggish several times And I wished it could have been a little bit better. I also really wish that the excavation of Sutton who could have been elaborated more, not by talking, but by actually showing flashbacks of the explorers on the Sutton who ship. I think that would have added a lot more of a dimension to this movie, but Overall, I did think it was an excellent film based on the acting and the story alone. I do think that screenwriter Maura Buffini uh, injected a lot of soul into this kind of movie, and I have to give her credit for that. She's certainly no stranger to film adaptations, as she wrote the screenplay for the 2011 adaptation of Jane Austen's uh, novel, Jane Eyre. Uh, actually, let me look that up. That can't be correct. Um, excuse me. It's not Jane Austen. Uh, cor- correction here for Charlotte Bronte's novel, Jane Eyre. My apologies for that mistake. But she's also written some other screenplays for for other films that were critically acclaimed in Great Britain and eventually made their way to the United States, including one called Tamara Drew, which is an interesting movie, which stars uh, Gemma Arterton as the titular character. And The, the Dig, I, I think, certainly had its moments. It, it, it could have been um, paced a little bit better, but I do think it is a smart movie that's still marginally worth seeing. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Penguin Bloom. This is a film that was theatrically, uh, excuse me, theatrically released in Australia on January 21st, 2021. And it was digitally released in the United States by Netflix, and I assume Canada, on January 27th. It is an Australian-American family drama film directed by Glendon Ivan from a screenplay by Sean Grant and Harry Cripps and is based on the book of the same name by Cameron Bloom and Bradley Trevor Grieve. It stars Naomi Watts as a woman who lives on the coast of Australia named Sam Bloom And her husband, Cameron Bloom, who wrote the book on which the movie is based, is played in this movie by Andrew Lincoln. 
And Andrew Lincoln is probably best known to Western audiences, particularly American audiences, as playing the role of Rick Grimes on The Walking Dead, which he played from 2010 to 2020 when he and his character left the show. But he had an extensive acting career in England before he was on The Walking Dead. People who don't watch The Walking Dead, who might like romantic comedies, would probably know him best, at, at least American viewers, from his role as Mark in Love Actually, a man who pines after Kira Knightley's character, who's married to Chiwetel Ejiofor's character. And even though his way of expressing his love for Kira Knightley's character in that movie hasn't aged particularly well. And also he's making a move on a married woman, which is not cool. But even then Andrew Lincoln, I think is a great actor and he did a, a serviceable job in that film. And I think he does a very good job here. Interestingly enough, I believe this is his first time playing an Australian because unlike Naomi Watts and Jackie Weaver, the latter of whom plays Naomi Watts's mother, Andrew Lincoln is from London, not from Australia. But Penguin Bloom is a movie about a family who takes in an injured magpie that makes a profound difference in their life. And this magpie is named by one of Naomi Watts' characters and Andrew Lincoln's character's three children as Penguin, hence the name of the movie Penguin Bloom. And I don't know how difficult it was to direct a bird, particularly a wild bird like a magpie. But there is a rule in Hollywood that directors are encouraged to follow. Excuse me, two rules. Number one, don't work with children. And number two, don't work with animals. And uh, the director, uh, Glendon Ivan, definitely broke both of those rules for this movie. But it must have been especially hard to train a magpie. But if it was hard, this movie made it look effortless. And also, there not only did they take in an injured bird and nurse it back to health, which we've seen in countless movies before, but Naomi Watts' character, Sam Bloom, who is based on a real person, I should say her name is Samantha Bloom, uh, and this is a true story, she was vacationing along with her family, and she was leaning against a railing on a high building, and the railing broke, Samantha Bloom fell backwards and she ended up injuring her back. And unfortunately that rendered her paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of her life. And it's really sad. It's sad when anybody gets paralyzed, but it's especially sad when it happens that way by accident. And there are various parts in this film where not only is Naomi Watts's character, nursing this bird back to health in order to, well, make herself feel better in addition to the bird. But there's also the tension between her and her son, Noah, who's played by Griffin Murray Johnson, who was the one who went up to that um, tallish building with her. And of course, it was an accident. And of course, you never really know when these kinds of things could happen to well-intentioned people, when bad things happen to good people. But there's still that conundrum that had they not gone up there and had she not leaned against that railing, the railing wouldn't have broke. But then again, if it wasn't her, it would have been somebody else. So it's one of those things that makes fate so cruel sometimes. And I I mean that in the best possible way. And I I did like the scenes in this film between Naomi Watts and the injured bird. I think we have seen those kinds of movies before about somebody who nurses a wild animal back to health and then becomes a better person for it. Birdman of Alcatraz is such a movie uh, like that or such a story. So there wasn't too much in terms of originality there, but I did appreciate the fact that this movie took these people and this bird seriously, and it wasn't 
just a kid-friendly film that made you ooh and ah and maybe melt your heart over the caring of this animal. I mean, indeed, the magpie is cute, but it's not the only point of the film. However, I did think the pace of the film was a little sluggish at times, and I also thought that there could have been a better way for this movie to have been organized in terms of its storytelling. But as it stands, I do think it's a serviceable film. I just don't think it's a particularly great film, which is why I'm giving Penguin Bloom my rating of a checkout. I did think that Naomi Watts and Andrew Lincoln worked very well together through the hard times and the good. I did think that Jackie Weaver played a surprisingly small role in this film, but she did what she could with her role. I just felt like the story could have been structured better, even if it was based on a true story. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, and now that I've reviewed all the films I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to reveal the movies that are coming out next on streaming, and I'm going to start with Netflix with what limited time that I have right now, and I really have to kind of dig to see what movies are uh, coming out. And if you could just excuse me for for a moment, I will see what is going to be coming out on streaming on February 5th, 2021. This is for the week of February 1st through February 5th. So February 5th is a Friday. And one of the biggest films come out that that day is one that's called Malcolm and Marie. And already Malcolm and Marie is getting some good critical buzz. I don't know if it's debuted in any kind of uh, film festival. For instance, the Sundance Film Festival is happening virtually this year. And what Sundance is actually doing is... It's not having a festival like it normally does, but instead it's distributing its films out to independent theaters, which I think is a great move and something that they should keep doing even after this pandemic when people can go to the Sundance Film Festival. But one of the things I'm going to try to do is attend the Sundance Film Festival in 2022. That's kind of a long-term goal of mine. But anyway, on February 5th, one of the biggest movies to make a debut is one called Malcolm and Marie. And this is about a director, presumably of movies, and his girlfriend's relationship, which is tested after they return home from his movie premiere and await critics' responses. So basically, they're waiting for a guy like me. (laughs) I'm quite flattered. (laughs) Now, amazingly, Malcolm and Marie stars only two people. There are no supporting actors in this movie whatsoever. So this is kind of like seeing a play. But it's not a play. It was actually written and directed by Sam Levinson. And the two actors who are going to star in this movie are John David Washington from Black Klansman and Zendaya. And uh, Sam Levinson, who has directed uh, a few films, this is probably going to be his breakthrough role. The other films he directed before... Malcolm and Marie include Assassination Nation and Another Happy Day. I didn't see Another Happy Day, but I did see Assassination Nation, and that movie, frankly, was a mess. But I will give him the chance to redeem himself with Malcolm and Marie. 
I've seen John David Washington in several films. He was a tour de force in Black Klansman, even though he was not nominated for that movie. And Zendaya is is an actress who started off on the Disney Channel the same way that Miley Cyrus and Ariana Grande have done. But I think she's actually probably quicker to rub off the stigma of being a child star on the Disney Channel more so than Miley Cyrus and Ariana Grande. Ariana Grande is just getting out of that Disney Channel stigma. Miley Cyrus, I think, tries way too hard to shake it off, but I think Zendaya is probably the one who's done it the most effortlessly. But I've seen her in in good movies before, and I've seen her act somewhat poorly in other movies. For instance, I thought she was great in The Greatest Showman, and she had some real chemistry between her and her lover interest in that movie, Zac Efron. However, I was disappointed in her performance in the movie Spider-Man Far From Home. I thought that she and Tom Holland had next to no chemistry, and I think the reason for that is because Zendaya, or Zendaya, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her name. I I think she just acted too jaded, like she was kind of better than the movie. And I couldn't get any sense of romantic or sexual frustration between the two of them that I thought would have been necessary for her character. But with that said, it seems like any bad performance that Zendaya or Zendaya or however you pronounce her name had previously, she might... And I I have to say might redeem herself in this movie. I don't know for sure. It's a little too soon to tell. But Malcolm and Marie looks promising and is one of the films that I will review for you. And I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that's going to be premiering on Netflix on February 5th is one that's called... There are actually a bunch of them. There's one that's called... Uh, Invisible City, and I'm just trying to make sure that that's not a TV series. Let me actually look that up for you and see what I think. Uh, it, it might be a docu-series. I don't entirely know, but it actually, correction, it is a foreign film. And it looks like it's about an underground world that is inhabited by mythical creatures evol- evolved from a deep lineage of Brazilian folklore. So this is a Brazilian film. One detective who finds himself caught in a murder investigation that puts him in the middle of a battle between these two worlds. The actors in this film are probably not known to Western audiences, but I'll reveal them anyway. Marco Pigosi, Alexandra Negrini, and Tanya Medina are amongst the actors in this film. This is one that I might not see. I'm not guaranteeing, like Malcolm and Marie, that I will see this film, but it looks really promising, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.